Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 33, the book of Acts, chapter 15. In typical in a typical English Bible, which I gather you all have, the first 14 chapters of Acts contain about 12,400 words. Chapters 15 through 28, in other words, that's to the end of the book, usually contain about 12,500 words. So indeed, where we sit today, as we study this pivotal 15th chapter in Acts, is at the physical and the literal center of the book. But more significant than that, is that this chapter is pivotal because it deals with the one thing that will cause Judeo-Christianity to explode onto the world scene in an un, a way that's unrivaled in history. And that one thing is the question of Gentile involvement in the Yeshua movement. It's ironic that the subject of Gentile involvement, which was decided at this Jerusalem council that we're going to spend considerable time with, was to debate how or even if Gentiles could be included in this exclusively Jewish religion that at the time was just a branch of Judaism. But within a hundred years or so, The contentious issue became how or even if Jews could be included in what had somehow become an almost exclusively Gentile religion. How did this amazing reversal happen? It all started here in Acts 15. Now many Bible commentators say that the issue was not if Gentiles could be included, but rather on what basis. But I think that's misleading, because at the heart of the matter of including Gentiles in the way was the issue of circumcision. And at the heart of the issue of circumcision was conversion. And at the heart of the issue of conversion was ritual purity. So you see, the issue was far more complex as regards Gentiles than meets the eye. We're going to reread this chapter in its entirely, uh, entirety momentarily. But first, let's define some important terms. Circumcision was critical to Judaism because it was critical to the inclusion in the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision was the sign that a person wanted to be part of the terms of that covenant. And what made the Abrahamic covenant so important was that first it divided the world into two groups. And it established one group as those people that God calls Hebrews. Second of all, it set apart a special land for this set-apart group of people to inherit and to dwell upon. 
Third, it set up a special relationship between God and the Hebrews by which Jehovah would protect and favor them above any other people of the other group, Gentiles, by blessing those Gentiles who blessed and comforted the Hebrews, but he would also punish and harm Gentiles who cursed, that is, they troubled, they oppressed the Hebrews. And fourth, in some special undefined way, the Lord would bless all the families of all the people on the earth through certain of Abraham's Hebrew descendants. And for anyone who wished to sign on to the terms of this covenant, Abraham's covenant, God instituted ritual male circumcision. Those males who underwent circumcision would be made part of God's set-apart people. Those who refused circumcision would be excluded from God's set-apart people. So circumcision was a tangible, physical sign that males wore that they were indeed entitled to the benefits but also subject to the consequences of the Abrahamic covenant. Since this is central to the debate and the decisions that we find in Acts 15, let's revisit exactly where this requirement of circumcision was found. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is on page 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. When Avram was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Avram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk in my presence and be pure-hearted. I will make my covenant between me and you and I will increase your numbers greatly. Avram fell on his face and God continued speaking with him. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Avram, but your name will be Avraham because I have made you the father of many nations. I will cause you to be very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will descend from you. I am establishing my covenant between me and you along with your descendants after you, generation after generation, an everlasting covenant to be God for you and for your descendants after you. I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are now foreigners, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Avraham, As for you, you are to keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, generation after generation. Here is my covenant, which you are to keep between me and you, along with your descendants after you. Every male among you is to be circumcised. 
You are to be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. This will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Generation after generation, every male among you who is eight days old is to be circumcised, including slaves born within your household and those bought from a foreigner not descended from you. The slave born in your house and the person bought with your money must be circumcised. Thus my covenant will be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who will not let himself be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The issue of circumcision is actually all about conversion. That is, a person converts from being one thing to another and different thing. Upon the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant, all human beings on earth found themselves, found ourselves, belonging to one of two groups, Hebrews or Gentiles. So essentially, the act of circumcision moves, it converts a member from the Gentile group to the Hebrew group. Male infants born to a Hebrew had to be circumcised at eight days in order for them to remain as part of the Hebrew group. But if a person was born as a Gentile and they wanted to become part of the Hebrew group, they had to be circumcised in order to signify their conversion. Thus the debate of Acts chapter 15 centered on whether or not male, a, a male Gentile who accepted Yeshua as his personal Messiah had to convert. They had to leave the Gentile group and move to the Hebrew group because belief in Yeshua belonged solely in the Hebrew religious sphere. And for males, that mandatory outward sign and proof of this conversion was circumcision in the foreskin. But behind this insistence by some members of the way, the Gentiles had to convert to being Jews in order to worship Yeshua was this sensitive issue of ritual purity. In simple terms, the issue of ritual purity decided if a person was clean or unclean in God's eyes. But the issue of ritual purity is not dealt with in the Abrahamic covenant. Rather, it's dealt with in the covenant of Moses, the law. Jews knew and practiced the ritual purity laws. Gentiles didn't, of course. And since one of the underlying principles of ritual purity is that impurity can be transmitted through physical contact, then Gentiles were considered as high risk for being impure and thus causing others to become impure.
That made it a high-risk matter for a Jew to associate with a Gentile, or at least that's what tradition said. But now it gets a bit more convoluted. Because Judaism mainly looked to halakha, Jewish law, for their instructions on ritual purity. Not so much to the law of Moses any longer. Now we've often talked about halakha, but its definition bears repeating. Halakha was a fusion of the biblical laws of Moses, the Torah, with man-made traditions that had been developed and with Jewish cultural customs that had been developed over the centuries. The traditions were essentially commentary on Holy Scripture, but they became more than that. The traditions established firm doctrines, rulings, that were made by the Jewish religious authorities. And those doctrines dictated every behavior of life for a Jew. And as one can easily imagine, the all-important issue of ritual purity was front and center. And so many intricate rules about ritual purity were created. Even before the New Testament era, tradition dictated that Gentiles were inherently unclean. And so Jews should not associate with them lest they become polluted. And yet, even within Judaism, the extent of this uncleanness associated with Gentiles and how permanent or solvable this problem might be was not universally agreed to. In a famous dispute over Halakha between Rabbi Eliezer of the school of Shammai versus Rabbi Joshua, we read this in the Talmud. Rabbi Eliezer says, All Gentiles, they have no share in the world to come. As it is said, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. That's from Psalm 17. However, Rabbi Joshua said to him, well, since this verse says, he who forget, uh, says, who forget God, this means that there are righteous among the nations who have a share in the world to come. The various members of the way would have held somewhat different perspectives on the matter of the inclusion of Gentiles as did their revered teachers and sages. So even at the Jerusalem Council, as they were debating about circumcision and conversion and ritual purity, it was Halakha that would be their primary guide, not the law of Moses all by itself. And this is because, just as it is in modern Christianity, in the minds of individual Christians, church doctrines and what the Bible says are essentially considered as one and the same. They supposedly say the same thing, mean the same thing, demand the same thing. And in casual conversation, Christians usually don't make a differentiation between Scripture and doctrine. And in the New Testament, the Jews didn't usually make 
a differentiation between the Holy Scriptures and their traditions. So, in the New Testament, when the term the law is used, most of the time, not all the time, it is referring to halakha, not only to the biblical Torah, the law of Moses. What's challenging for us is to discern when the use of the term the law means the law of Moses all by itself or when it means halakha in general. I realize how difficult this is for Gentile Christians to wrap our minds around. It is simply not how we think and the terms are foreign to us. But it is how the New Testament Jews thought. And it is how the writers of the New Testament thought. And until we can grasp this, we are going to continue to misconstrue what's being said. And as a result, we're going to construct some pretty strange doctrines that in no way reflect the biblical intent or truth. So to sum it up, Circumcision is the God-ordained sign of the Abrahamic covenant and it requires the physical physical removal of the male foreskin. Conversion is changing from one thing to another thing. And so circumcision was the requirement to signify that a change from being a Gentile to being a Jew, a Hebrew, had occurred. According to the mindset of Jews and Judaism in the New Testament era, ritual purity, a requirement of the biblical Torah and of Halakha, could only be attained and maintained by Jews. Thus a Gentile usually could not be ritually clean. Therefore, contact with a Gentile brought on ritual impurity along with its consequences to a Jew something no Jew wanted to contend with. However, that was not the teaching of the biblical law of Moses. That was the teaching of mainstream halakha, Jewish law, which was a merging and mingling of the law of Moses with man-made traditions along with ancient Jewish cultural um, customs. So I promise you, The short and concise reporting of Luke about this Jerusalem council consists of greatly abbreviated summations, partly because he expects his readers to be mostly familiar with everything that we've just discussed. And since we're not, we're going to take the time to pull this chapter apart piece by piece by piece. So settle in. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1381. We are going to reread the whole chapter. Very important chapter. Acts chapter 15. Follow along with me. But some men came down from Judah, 
Judah to Antioch, and they began teaching the brothers, well, you can't be saved unless you undergo brit milah, circumcision, in the manner prescribed by Moses. Well, this brought them into no small measure of discord and dispute with Saul and Barnabas. So the congregation assigned Saul, Barnabas, and some of themselves to go and put this shelah, this question, before the emissaries and the elders up in Jerusalem. And after being set off by the congregation, they made their way through Phoenicia and Shomron, recounting in detail how the Gentiles had turned to God. And this news brought great joy to all the brothers. Well, upon arrival in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the Messianic community, including the emissaries and the elders, and they reported what God had done through them. But some of those who had come to trust were from the party of the Parshim, the Pharisees. And they stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Torah of Moses. Well, the emissaries and the elders met to look into this matter. And after a lengthy debate... Kepha, Peter, got up and said to them, Brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back, God chose me from among you to be the one by whose mouth the Goyim, the Gentiles, should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. And God, who knows the heart, bore them witness by giving the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to them, just as he did to us, That is, he made no distinction between us and them, but he cleansed their heart by trust. So why are you putting God to the test by now placing a yoke on the neck of the Talmudim, the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have had the strength to bear? No, it's through the love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered, and it's the same with them. Then the whole assembly kept still as they listened to Barnabas and Saul tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. And James broke the silence to the brothers to reply. Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Shimon, again, that's Peter, has told in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking from among the Gentiles a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophets are in complete harmony with this. For it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may may seek the Lord. That is, all the Gentiles who have been called by my name, says Adonai, who is doing these things. All this has been known for ages. Therefore, my opinion is, we should not put obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Because from the earliest times, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, with his words being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. Then the emissaries and the elders, together with the whole Messianic community, decided to select men from among themselves to send to Antioch with Saul and Barnabas. And they sent Judah, called Barsaba, and Selah, both leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. From the emissaries and the elders, your brothers. To the brothers from among the Gentiles throughout Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some people went out from from among us without our authorization, and that they have upset you with their talk, unsettling your minds. So we have decided unanimously to select men and send them to you with our dear friends uh, Barnabas and Saul, who have Paul have dedicated their lives to upholding the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So we've sent 
Judah and Selah, they will confirm in person what we're writing. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to lay any heavier burden on you than the following requirements. To abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. And if you keep yourselves from these, you'll be doing the right thing. Shalom. Well, the messengers were set off and went to Antioch where they gathered the group together and they delivered the letter. And after reading it, the people were delighted by its encouragement. Judah and Silah, who were also prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off with a greeting of Shalom from the brothers to those who had sent them. But Shaul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, where they and many others taught, proclaimed the good news of the message about the Lord. And after some time, Shaul said to Barnabas, Let's go back. Let's visit the brothers in all the towns where we proclaim the message about the Lord. See how they're doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them Yochanan, John, the one called Mark. But Saul thought it would be unwise to take this man with them since he'd gone off and left them in Pamphylia to do the work by themselves. There was such a sharp disagreement over this that they separated from each other with Barnabas taking Mark and sailing off to Cyprus. However, Saul chose Selah and left after the brothers had committed him to the love and kindness of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the congregations. Now the first verse of this chapter rather well sums up the dilemma and the cause of this meeting of the leadership of the way in Jerusalem with Paul and the the other visiting members of the Antioch congregation. It was that some of the brothers, meaning Jewish believers in Yeshua, who lived in Judea, formed a contingent. And they traveled to Antioch of Syria to inform the Gentile members of the synagogue at Antioch that Jewish law required them to be circumcised if they wanted to be involved with the Jewish community. And especially if they wanted to join in the Jewish religion. To be clear, these were believing Jews who came with that message. It is regularly taught that these were not believers. Rather, they were Pharisees or they were Judaizers, meaning Jews who rejected the gospel. Later in verse 24, James verifies that those who went to Antioch to demand circumcision indeed went out from us but without our authorization. Second, they were from the Jerusalem area. And third, they were teaching that belief in Messiah Yeshua by Gentiles requires conversion, which was signified by having circumcision. So essentially the idea was that while Gentiles could learn about the gospel and all about salvation and about the Jewish Savior Yeshua, they could not complete the process of becoming saved, except they become Jews. Thus, salvation for Gentiles was for Gentiles only insofar as receiving the gospel as truth was the beginning of a process that culminated with their rejection of their Gentile identity and the taking on of a new Jewish identity. 
as verse 2 says, this raised a ruckus between Paul and Barnabas and that group of believers who were part of the circumcision faction who came demanding circumcision of the Gentiles. Now, both sides of this argument had reasonable and educated positions. This was not the, the, the mean people against the nice people. Or it wasn't an issue of ethnic bigotry. This was not the intolerant versus the tolerant. It was not the ignorant against the educated, nor was it the pretenders against those who were actually saved. Remember, no such thing as a New Testament existed at this time to provide guidance over this sticky issue. And it wouldn't for another 150 years as these various thorny theological and cultural disputes arose for the way, they had to think about them. They had to pray about them. Debate over them. Wrestle with them. Then come to some conclusions because each case required an answer. And while we have the benefit of the inspired conclusions that they eventually reached about important matters of living out our faith, they were making it up as they went along. And it was kind of a rocky process. Now the resource they relied on the most to make their decisions outside of the Holy Spirit was halakha. Now that might sound odd to us, but what else was at their disposal? They fully intended on operating within the long understood, mostly settled matters of Jewish religious doctrines because much had already been written and discussed about the issue of Gentiles. But also recall that it had not been all that long ago that God went to great lengths to get the Apostle Peter straightened out on this issue of fellowship between Jews and Gentile God-fears by means of that strange vision and even stranger conversation between Peter and God. This incident amounted to a new revelation to Peter and the believing community even though it was actually the Lord taking Peter and Judaism to task for ignoring his holy scriptures on this matter and inventing their own doctrines. That one incident with Peter indeed was useful for doctrinal decisions for the way, however, by no means did it explicitly address or settle every doctrinal matter about Gentiles being included in the faith, nor especially about how Jews and Gentiles were to relate to one another. Much more development of doctrines on these delicate issues was needed. Now, Jewish believers appear by now to generally accept that the gospel could be taken to the Gentiles and that perhaps with proper precautions, Jews could associate with Gentiles and not be made ritually unclean. But that didn't settle the matter to many of them about the most fundamental principle within Judaism, circumcision. So the congregation of the Antioch synagogue decided that the best course of action was to send Paul, Barnabas, and some others to Jerusalem to consult with the leadership of the way to decide how to proceed 
No doubt assuming that those representatives of the circumcision faction who came to Antioch had been sent with the blessings of the Jerusalem leadership. I want to also interject that while to us it might seem as though we have here some extraordinary event about to occur, this Jerusalem council, that has little precedence in Judaism, that's not the case. These sorts of disputes over doctrinal matters were an ongoing happening in Judaism and didn't represent anything out of the ordinary. In fact, we see ha- what we see happening here is quite typical of the kinds of proceedings we find recorded in the Talmud when there is a genuine doubt in ascertaining the proper halakhic ruling on some subject or another. Those in the lower echelons of religious leadership would take their issues to a higher leadership. Then the higher leadership discussed it amongst themselves and then they would set down rulings. These rulings became laws and precedents that were meant to be followed on all similar cases in the future. Now the distance from Syrian Antioch to Jerusalem is around 350 miles following the route that Paul and Barnabas took. It would have taken them three to four weeks depending on traveling conditions. Now clearly their intent was to stop in and visit some believing congregations along the way, which they did, so they weren't in a terrible hurry. The general reaction of these congregations in Samaria and Phoenicia was joy at hearing the great success that Paul and Barnabas was having among the Gentiles. So at every turn, we hear of this welcoming attitude of Jews towards Gentiles who come to faith in Yeshua. Of course, what that looked like, how it would evolve, was not likely very clear to them. Well, in verse 4, when they arrive in Jerusalem, they were greeted with enthusiasm, they were welcomed by both the lay believers and the leadership of the way who were anxious to hear their stories about evangelizing Gentiles. However, some Pharisees among them spoke out that it was necessary that these new Gentile believers were circumcised. Now, obviously, this did not catch Paul by surprise since this was the very reason he'd come to Jerusalem. Now, so that we're not confused by terms, these Pharisees spoken of here are believers. Just as in Christendom, A person can identify with a particular denomination separately with a certain political party, even more identify what level they see themselves on on a social scale, middle, upper, whatever. But none of that necessarily affects whether they're still a Christian. Well, Paul was a Pharisee and a believer. He didn't stop being a Pharisee because he became a believer. These two designations weren't mutually exclusive. Many Pharisees became believers. But of course they brought with them a predetermined set of beliefs and perspectives through which they viewed the scriptures and their trust in Christ and what it meant concerning any number of theological and and ritual issues. And there were numerous schools of thought within the Pharisee party. So it's not like they all held the same viewpoint. See, it's a sad mistake in Christian circles to shake our heads in disgust at the mention of Pharisees. 
we usually have a bit of an unfair mental picture of who they were, what they believed, how they were regarded by the people. Josephus, in his book Antiquities, insists that the Pharisees were admired for living modestly, for their respect shown to their religious elders, for their knowledge and their wisdom, and as such they were very influential among the townspeople. The Pharisees were known for teaching and practicing the highest ideals of Judaism. In fact, Dr. David Flusser says that there were seven well-defined and named types of Pharisees. Some were known for their hypocritical behavior and supercritical attitudes. Others for their willingness to be reasonable and helpful for even the most menial of tasks for the benefit of the lowliest of people. And for the most part, Pharisees were the synagogue authorities. Now the lesson for us is that it is never wise to define an entire group according to the behavior of a few. And that's whether that behavior is positive or negative. So this believing Pharisee says that the new Gentile believers must be circumcised and they must begin right now to obey the law of Moses. Now don't be fooled. This is not at all saying that the believers should specifically follow the law of Moses but not have to follow traditions and customs. Every group of Jews, just like every group of Christians, follows the Bible according to their group's interpretations of the Holy Scriptures. Every denomination of Christians, every sect of Judaism is given its distinct identity due entirely to their varying interpretations of the Bible. Within Judaism, how they follow the law of Moses is reflected and defined in their traditions. Within Christianity, how we follow the Bible is reflected and defined in our doctrines. Well, beginning in verse 6. Verse 6. The debate on this serious matter of Halakha as it applies to believers and Gentiles begins. And after discussion went on for some time, Peter stood up to speak. And what we find in the next few verses is that essentially Peter, Paul, and Barnabas form one side of the argument, while these believing Pharisees of the circumcision faction form the other side of the argument. James, the supreme leader of the way, is the moderator. And he tries to guide the council towards towards a solution. Now Peter having had the mind-changing experience with God where he became persuaded that Gentiles were not inherently unclean as Jewish tradition says they are and then went to the God-fear Cornelius' house and he was amazed as the Holy Spirit descended upon a group of Gentiles he relates the meaning of this experience in view of the subject at hand He says that in his view, this entire matter of Gentile inclusion was settled some time ago as a result of this experience of his. And that as a leader of the group, and as the disciple who went to the Gentiles with his good news, it's only logical that it would have been to Peter that God revealed his will to him on this matter. 
and by God sending the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, it indeed revealed to Peter that the Lord sees no distinction between Gentiles and Jews, and that these Gentiles' hearts were cleansed, not by the rules of Halakha, but by their trust in Messiah. Peter is not saying that God no longer sees the world in terms of Jews and Gentiles. Rather, he's saying that when it comes to the means of salvation, God makes no distinction. When it comes to the means of salvation, God makes no distinction. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul will express that same thought this way. In Romans 3.1, we read this. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, yet, as concerns circumcision and thus conversion to becoming a Jew... Peter says in verse 10 that even though God has eliminated any distinction for salvation between Jews and Gentiles, it would be wrong for this council to put a yoke on the neck of these new Gentile disciples which neither they nor their fathers were able to bear. Now the part about the good news of salvation is not difficult for us to understand. But the statement about a yoke upon the necks of the Gentiles that was too much for the Jewish people to bear is going to take some explanation. And I want to begin by telling you that because we are Western Christians, we instantly view this statement in a negative light. But Jews would have understood it quite differently. Rabbi Joseph Shulam puts it this way. The metaphor of the yoke is typically employed in rabbinic literature to indicate Torah observance as a sign of acceptance of God's covenant. So in the Torah, we'll find the term yoke, or ol, O-L, ol, in Hebrew, used in a few different settings. We hear of it spoken of as the yoke of heaven. We'll hear about the yoke of the commandments. We'll hear about the yoke of the Torah. Now do especially, I think, to this sadistic slavery that we use in our past. The metaphor of the yoke conjures up people as beasts of burden. A yoke is this rough, uncomfortable, back-breaking instrument of brutality. That's not how Peter means it. It's not how the Bible means it. It's not what it meant to Jews at that time. A yoke is a device, please hear this, a yoke is a device that connects and directs. A yoke is a device that connects and directs. The yoke harnesses the labors of the creature to the direction of his master. That's what a yoke does. It's not meant to harm or to oppress. It's meant for two wills to act as one. Thus a person who is yoked to heaven is connected to heaven and directed by heaven. 
They aren't oppressed by heaven. A person who's yoked to the Torah is connected to the Torah, is directed by the Torah. They aren't oppressed by the Torah, and so on and so forth. Another reason, other than cultural, that modern Christians see the metaphor of the yoke as a negative and bad is because it's typically compared to Yeshua's statement that his yoke is easy and hers burden is light. From Matthew chapter 11. My point is that in Judaism the term yoke doesn't mean anything oppressive any more than Yeshua's own yoke was seen as oppressive. Listen to the context of Yeshua's statement about his yoke in Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all of you who are struggling and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke's easy, my burden's light. What are the struggles and burdens of the people? It's the struggles and burdens of life. Anybody here not have any struggles or burdens? Put your hand down, you're too young. (laughs) I mean, the struggles and burdens of life that Yeshua's talking about is just like it is now. Just like it is now. The heartaches, the uncertainties about tomorrow, our afflictions, the guilt we bear for our past deeds, the knowledge of our inability to measure up to God's standards, no matter how hard we seem to work at it. Notice how Yeshua says, you should take this yoke of His upon yourself. Again, the yoke is meant in a positive light. It's a typical Jewish metaphor meaning to connect yourself to Him. Connect yourself to Yeshua so that you can take your direction from Him as your Master. Connect to Yeshua. Allow Him to steer you. Yeshua says to yoke, to connect yourself to Him so you can learn from Him. And that in this connection with Him, you will find rest. Everybody knew what that meant. It was a customary Jewish expression. Jews thought of it as something pleasant, desirable. Yeshua is merely employing a standard, recognizable, everyday part of Jewish thought and language to make an illustration. I do that every week when I teach you. I employ sayings and word pictures that we all understand within our culture to make a point. Yeshua is saying, come and connect yourself to me. That this will release you from your current struggles and not give you new ones to replace it. Many of the, of the several messiahs who came and went during his day wanted a following. And boy, they demanded loyalty and obedience. What he was not doing, and it's nowhere present in the context of this passage. Look at it yourself. He was not comparing his yoke to the Torah or to the law of Moses. That is, the source of the struggles and burdens he wants to free us from isn't the law of Moses. It's not even hinted at. That thought
thought is simply not even present in Judaism and is certainly not present anywhere in Matthew 11. But Christians have for centuries read that thought into that passage. Now I want to tell you something. Jews then and Jews now do not think of Torah observance as a burden. Not at all. They think of it as a privilege and a joy. It is Christianity that has created this image of Torah observance as some type of a primitive, ugly, oppressive weight that brings people low. But let's talk a bit more now about that term burden. We've covered yoke. Let's talk about burden. Burden, of course, can speak of a heavy load. But in common speech, it also means to hamper or to impede. So when Peter speaks of avoiding placing a yoke on the neck of these new disciples, it's too much to bear. The idea is not to hamper these new Gentile believers with too much too soon. And by the way, as we get further into Acts 15 and we hear the council's conclusion and we read that letter, which we've already done once, that was sent to the Antioch congregation, it bears out this interpretation I just told you. And then Peter once again speaks of the main thrust of the gospel message now in Acts 15.11. No, it's through the love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered. It's the same with them. So, the thought is, the thought is not that the Torah law is just too hard to keep for the Jews, so it's just going to be impossible for the Gentiles. Rather, in relation to the subject of salvation for Gentiles, it is that it is only through the love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are thus delivered, saved. And says Peter, it's like that for us the Jews, and so it's like that for them, the Gentiles. I want to also point out that it is little more than common sense to not expect a Gentile who was born and raised as a pagan, a person who until recently knew nothing of the God of Israel, or of the Torah, or what sin is, or what a Messiah is, to accept a Jewish Savior, which is a miracle in itself, and then to just suddenly have to begin to apply to their lives everything that it took Jews all their lives to learn? It'd be too daunting, too discouraging and unfair. It would just set them up for failure. In fact, the rabbis of Peter's era had essentially the same view that he held about not hampering Gentile proselytes when they converted to Judaism. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, we find in the tractate Yevamot uh, in the Talmud, and we read this, very interesting. There it says, Our rabbis taught... If at the present time a man desires to become a proselyte, he is to be addressed as follows. What reason have you for desiring to become a proselyte? Do you not know that Israel at the present time are persecuted and oppressed, despised, harassed and overcome by afflictions? But if he replies, I know, and yet I'm unworthy. 
then he is accepted forthwith. And he is given instructions of some of the minor, some of the major commandments. And as he's informed of the punishment for the transgression of the commandments, so he's informed of the reward granted for their fulfillment. He's not, however, to be persuaded or dissuaded too much. Hear the tone of that? The point is that it was the position of Jewish law of that day, Halakha, that a Gentile proselyte to Judaism was to be brought along slowly. Not have too much expected of him other than for a few minor, a few major commandments which the community leadership felt was minimal and fundamental to the faith. These he'd have to understand and do immediately. But the rest, that could come in time. Being taught and discipled by the community and he'd be expected to grow at the best rate each individual could. His requirements to adhere to all of the commandments of the Torah, that wasn't abolished. Rather, it was postponed until he reached sufficient maturity to be able to comprehend and do without being completely confused and overwhelmed. Now we're soon going to find out that Peter's advice in this regard would be heeded, no doubt, because it just fit right in with the current mindset of mainstream Judaism of that day. The issue then for the Jerusalem Council would be which minor and major commandments should these new Gentile believers have to follow immediately? Which ones? But also, how would these new converts then learn about the remaining commandments? We'll continue with Acts 15 next week and see how those questions were answered.